everyone and welcome to this episode of TF that we will be releasing at some point over Christmas whether it's free or paid when we don't feel like recording an episode ho 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 it's a very Christmas, Christmas. episode we're going to learn the true meaning of Christmas on this episode yeah but it said the Christmas episode where like it's in the stocking you don't really know whether it was exactly what you wanted but you can you can you like it <laughs> yeah yeah it's the Christmas episode where it's like yeah, you know, it's you know what? You don't have to spend money on tooth on toothpaste for like a month now because you just have some. <laughs> yeah, you know. It's like the, the links podcast of podcasts. that comes to oh, your yeah. house and brushes your teeth. That's the TF <laughs> yeah, promise. That's right. Mm. It actually does clean your teeth while you sleep, and that is medical advice. It's the mm. it's the Kit Kat chunky and Kit Kat branded mug gift set. No, no, it's <laughs> the big to- no, it's the big Tobler, and I feel like the big Tobler is actually the best way of putting it. Oh, maybe. Like you the Big Toblerone's you, more desirable. Yeah, I like the Big Toblerone. You don't really think you mm. want it, but when you get it, you don't complain about it. You're I really think, you have it. I want to be very clear to anyone <laughs> listening to this who's considering buying me a Christmas present. I think I want a Big Toblerone, and I want a Big Toblerone. I love <laughs> Toblerone. It's so good. Oh, How much did Toblerone kick in for this? Less than you'd think. Mm. <laughs> they sent Riley one big Toblerone. <laughs> they sent me a little <laughs> sold out. They sent me a normal candy bar-sized Toblerone that you get, like, for several euros at the airport. However, however, it is in the spirit of festive cheer that I would also like to introduce our guest for this uh, this episode. It is Quinn Slobodian, who is a professor of history at Wellesley, author of the book Crack Up Catabolism, and also uh, the author of a recent article on a book called The Sovereign Individual, which we're going to be talking about. Quinn, as a man with a wonderful first name, how's it going? It's going well. How do you feel about Toblerones? I know, I know you're like a serious academic, but I, I, I don't want to stop talking about Toblerones just yet. I'm quite into this now. I'm trying to cut back, I must say. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like outside the club at 3am, like, oh, I'm trying to quit. It's, uh, I'm, just, I'm more of a social Toblerone eater. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 became, I became a Marxist because they, it, like, the economy happened and they started trying to like, invent ways of making Toblerone smaller without you getting mad at them. So where before you would have like, the big Toblerone, now they're selling like, little Toblerones and bags and like, individual triangles and shit like that. And so, you know. I know, they're so expensive, I've had to start rolling my own Toblerones. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually, it's, it's weird that actually um, Keir Starmer is going to try to ban Toblerone-flavored vapes, even though it <laughs> helped a lot of people stop eating Toblerone. <laughs> right. there's, no, there's, no, there's no chocolate in there, it's just no. flavoring. No, indeed. Uh, but no, uh, so look, uh, Quinn, you've recently written this, this article uh, for The New Statesman about, um, about the sovereign individual, this book by James Dale Davidson and William Rees-Mogg, Jacob Rees-Mogg's father. Mm. Um, but also, you, you, you're kind of a sovereign individual head. You actually have several editions of the book. You have the most recent one by Peter Thiel. So what, uh, what got you into the sovereign individual fandom? Well, it's kind of the book that I've been looking for, which is kind of like the mask-off version of The World is Flat. Right. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. as a child of the 90s, I was raised with a very positive, you know, the propagandistic view of globalization was all around us and the sort of uh, Coca-Cola, UNICEF, uh, you know, folkloric hand holding unity version of globalization. So it was actually kind of bracing to come across like the most full throated, like cynical, dark globalization tract, which is really what the sovereign individual is. It, its story is interesting. Its afterlife is quite interesting. It's one of these things that as we begin to talk about the book and its afterlife, 
you'll see its fingerprints in a lot of what we've talked about, especially places, especially, in fact, you'll see it in our, in discussions of like some cathedral and bizarre stuff comes up in there, Mm. but at the same time as well, like when we talked about Prospera, we did that double episode on Prospera. That's basically someone took this book as an instruction manual. It's a cookbook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As to how to found a new society. The Libertarian's cookbook. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. even worse than the anarchist's cookbook. Yeah, it just teaches you how to make a big Toblerone. Yeah. <laughs> well, it just expects that someone else is going to make the bomb for you and never actually details how anything gets made. Yeah, it's, it, there, yeah. yeah, the frictionless action of the market will necessarily produce all of the bombs that we need. Provide me this pipe bomb. If you get the mm. extended edition, it tells you, Teacher Gives has this very good recipe on how to make a roast chicken, uh, in which it tells you to keep the skin... Uh, a kind of whitish pink because food safety standards are something set by the government and uh, you shouldn't respect that. And you've got to roast it on top of slices That's of garlic right. bread. That's right. That's the the garlic bread has to be overdone. That's mm. the way that you do a perfect roast chicken. Big meat thermometer wants you to do it some other way. <laughs> so, so. Uh, before we get into this, though, I do have a little bit of front matter that's not connected entirely to the news cycle, which is... You want to show us your front matter? Uh, I do not. Which is, we have a line update. The line. Oh, yes. There's further information. <laughs> Meanwhile, on Friday night. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, Saudi Arabia is now saying that directly build their futuristic city, The Line. No, what? No. They were so close. The, the, the line is more of a vibe, actually. Mm. We're renaming it The Vibe. Yeah. Is it going to be only Metaverse? <laughs> what happened to the Winter, what happened yeah, to the winter to the Olympics? Vibe. So, well, that's the thing. Take- Milo kind of already said the answer. Oh, for fuck's sake. Which is that Saudi Arabia will not directly build the futuristic city, the line at Neom, but will instead use, quote, a lot of artificial intelligence to design a digital twin backbone. So we're going to do it in the metaverse. I feel like that's probably like the only way you could build something like that is if like you built it on the Sims. Yeah, so this is, we've got to build quite a lot of real estate in a short space of time. Well, we're not actually building the line. We're assembling it from a series of modular pieces that are pre-engineered and predetermined as to what they do that will first build and design in the metaverse as a digital twin. So yes, that's right. There, Look, look, the line is still definitely happening. They dug that big trench in the desert. They're still, mm. the, it's, it is happening. Yeah, 1, it's like 1,000%. Yeah, we, w- what else do you want? We've got two vast and trunkless legs. The rest of it's coming, all right? <laughs> well, in this case, we have two vast and trunkless uh, legs in uh, like Unity or the Epic Engine. Mm-hmm. Wait, I like the idea, like yeah. the sort of reverse Ozymandias well, statue, that's why instead they built- of it being weathered to two vast and trunkless legs, it was simply never completed. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? They had to build the vast and trunkless legs because in the metaverse, you can't have those. Yeah, that's right. It's actually just a, it's a vast and legless trunk, actually. Mm. That's, that's the innovation. <laughs> just floating. So it says, we're assembling them from a series of modular pieces that are pre-engineered and predetermined as to what they do. So before they build the line, they have to build the factory that builds the line. Step one. The uh, the neon in the line is actually in the conclusion to my book. You'll probably not be that surprised to... Here and this this example of sort of building cloud first and then land later. That's I think probably ripped directly off from um, the Lieberland scheme, which itself was ripped off of the central decentral land scheme. Um, because what's his name from uh, Patrick Schumacher has done exactly this, built like an extremely elaborate, like swooping, gorgeous uh, uh, version of Lieberland, despite the fact that they can't even sort of 
land there on a speedboat because they'll be picked up by the Croatian border guards. This is just an exaggerated version of that. But they do have, I saw just uh, yesterday, they're filming their first Bollywood movie in Neom. They're doing some drag racing out there. They're killing some locals. I mean, that is the sport for it, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, they're doing the basics. They're doing the frontier stuff. When they're filming a Bollywood movie that's just set in a trench in the desert. I suppose so. (laughs) It's... I've I've seen weirder just just like only sports that can happen in a straight line. So you got archery, shooting, drag racing, uh, curling. Uh-huh. That's gonna be that's gonna pop off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You got cricket. It's really extreme Fencing. cricket, like long cricket. <laughs> yeah, like you yeah, can it's hit, a big I've, wicket. I, I've hit it for six thousand. Um, but another another piece of of information. This is actually just something I plan to talk about, but something that just hove across my screen now. Yes, it's news cycle connected, but also worth talking about. Um, uh, again, one of the only people worthwhile writing about Keir Starmer is John Stone uh, in The Independent. And he's also playing for England. It's very impressive that he's yeah, that's right. combining those two uh, things. So Keir Starmer says, there is a case for GPS tagging certain asylum seekers. Amazing. <laughs> didn't didn't Keir Starmer like, memorably pledge a sort of like compassionate human rights-based approach to migration policy at one point? In that I'm sure, they'll be, that I'm sure they'll be barely visible from the outside, though. I mean, mm. These will yeah. be humane tags. Some asylum seekers, they're very hardworking, and they take their training very seriously, and I would like to follow them on Strava to motivate me <laughs> for my own running goals. <laughs> and, I, and I think that should be available to the populace. As well. I think many of them, you know, having walked here from Syria, could set a great fitness <laughs> example to a lot of people in the UK, you know, who need to get up and get moving. Yeah, if well, if they can flee a war-torn country, you can do your 10,000 steps. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, he says, basically, look, only while the claim is being processed, before he then says, by the way, it ta- often takes up to four years to process a claim. So that basically means, uh, yet again, once again, just saying, uh, don't worry, we're going to do pretty much the same thing. We'll make it more efficient. Yeah, but like... Four four years of GPS tagging, but compassionately. Yeah. You get but pick whatever like brand you want. If you want like a Gucci one, you can have that. No, uh, but also that he says that the, the again the funding for uh, dealing with refugees once again unsurprisingly not going to go into say uh, welcome centers. It won't go into improving conditions for people's lives where they're waiting for their asylum claims to be processed. It won't even go into changing the one law that doesn't allow people to come here easily, which is that. Um, Airlines, ha- if you get denied uh, entry into the country, airlines have to pay to fly you somewhere else, which is one of the main reasons why airlines won't fly people in to make asylum claims because it's financially risky for them, right? Uh, if just not even effort in changing that. No, he's going to fund the National Crime Agency more to crack down on human trafficking gangs. But once again, um, agent of unreality, Keir Starmer. I'm sure between now, uh, which is this is being recorded on the 5th of December. Uh, I'm sure that by the between now and when this comes out, which will probably be later this month, there'll be more examples of him being an agent of unreality. But we're here to talk about something else. We're here to talk about the sovereign individual uh, and the life and afterlife of this uh, very strange book. So, Quinn, can you give us just the elevator pitch of the sovereign individual who wrote it? What's it all about? You say it's the mask off version of the. Uh, sort of um, kumbaya, join hands version, Coca-Cola globalization story. Uh, mm-hmm. t- what is The Sovereign Individual? How does it work? What are its moving parts? Well, it was the third book that Davidson and Rhys Mogg wrote together. The first one was called Blood in the Streets, after the well-known advice that you should invest when there's blood in the streets. That was in 1987. The second book was called The Great Reckoning, 
published in 1991, and the third one was Sovereign Individual. And they were they were publishing the books kind of as greatest hits of the investment newsletter that they were selling subscriptions to. Oh, it's all it was called Substacks. <laughs> it is proto Substack for sure. The investment newsletter has a strong claim. It's a lot less ominous sounding than the first two. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's right. It was just called. It was called strategic investment. You had to pay a subscription. They also sold a twenty-four hour service to uh, a phone, uh, something called Gold Line, where you could get tips on the the rising or falling price of gold in the next news cycle. And these things were actually like really big business. Clock, yeah. but for gold. As a, yeah, as a babe station girl with a Nokia thirty three ten, and you're like, what? What price is the gold, baby? Yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't put it past them. But so they, the books were basically written by Davidson. I think Reese Mogg, um, you know, he was for those. I mean, I guess probably most people know, but he was editor of the Times from the late '60s to the early '80s. Became a lifetime peer in the '80s, and had this sort of like cultural and economic man about town status, where he had a kind of a weight to the things that he was saying. So the book is really pretty gonzo, hard right libertarian apocalyptic prediction but somehow his sort of accent over top of it makes it seem sort of like not quite as deranged as it might and i think it got it a lot of the relatively positive reception and positive reviews that it got but the the book is basically arguing that in the next few decades so i.e right around now from 1997, the time of publication, the nation states would be starting to come apart at the seams because mostly because of the rise of cyberspace, sort of draining because states of, of my revenue. Weird son. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, he's the agent. He's the Manchurian candidate for all of this. Yeah. But <laughs> the idea being that states wouldn't be able to tax their populations anymore because people who actually were making money would just be secreting away their money electronically to low and no tax jurisdictions, leaving the welfare state to kind of wither and die, causing uprisings of anger from the sort of low IQ, you know, leftover um, wasteoid citizens that have been left behind as the sovereign individual. This hundred million. Number, so he names a number of that something was, I like th- I think it's, there thousand. are. The way that I I read it uh, over the last few days, and it's like, I think he says there will be a maximum of about 100 million. Yeah. Um, At at the beginning, it will be about 200,000. And the way he sees it as these are the real Mm -hmm. humans, right? It's sort of, it's the way it's, yeah. Well, the way it struck me, because a lot of this book as well is a lot of like crankish tellings of history. Like there's sort of like a fourth great turning thing. They talk about, Mm -hmm. um, they talk about how well in Greece Absolutely. there was a ri- the rise of ancient what we would call classical Greece in about 500 BC, the pinnacle of Rome in about about zero AD, the pinnacle of um, and then the fall of Rome about 500 AD, followed by like the rise of feudalism in 1000 AD, the rise of the early modern era in 1500 AD, and then the transition to something else uh, in around 2000 AD. Right? This is but this is like again this is crank history. This ignores kind of everything else that happens in between. How contingent it all is. Uh, but the way I see it, right, is it's uh, once like so many things, especially that we've talked about recently on this show, is it's a little bit like trying to summarize Hegel after you've been hit by a golf ball uh, that's flying at great speed. Because <laughs> Yeah, I said Marx with a catastrophic head injury, and I kind of stand by that. It's like history sort of inevitably progresses to 
I don't know what making yeah, more money, the, hanging out with all my friends. The sovereign individual, the character of the sovereign individual, as as you say, is one of these uh, super high IQ rich people who is as miniaturization happens, as the, as microprocessing, as they call it, um, uh, becomes. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. or as it becomes shatters like, nation states, the, yeah. as it is the basically I don't know the cotton gin or seed drill of our uh, our era and redefines the entire global economy. Um, that all of the inefficiencies that allowed for the great majority of mostly useless low IQ humans, he does approvingly cite the bell curve in here, by the way. Um, though that that those efficiencies were all sort of drop away, the ability of these people to exercise political control because of their numbers and the institutional inertia of things like democratic nation states and stuff are all going to collapse because they'll simply be constantly outcompeted by um, organizations and people enabled by computers and microprocessing. And the sovereign individual is the small number of people who emerge from these ashes, these high IQ cognitive elite people who are able to be valuable to one another um, and who will become essentially states unto themselves. That sort of or, or something like states unto themselves because they won't be states. They will be sovereign. They will they will be humans. They will recognize one another as humans uh, and as as wielders of their own destiny. And they will see everyone else as just invented slavery again, but for going on the computer. I swear to fucking god, <laughs> these people. He predicted that meeting between Tim Cook and Elon Musk. <laughs> but I mean, that's where the history stuff becomes kind of relevant because the Middle Ages is like their big touchstone. So their idea is that just as that was a time when Europe was fractured into a million little pieces, so too will the future be like that, and there'll be. You know, sovereign individuals will have their little uh, fortified citadels and readouts and people that they can bring into their employ. And then beyond that will just be, you know, the kind of uh, ungoverned madness of um, of the, the plebes as they sort of breed themselves first into and then out of existence. It's, it's not slavery. It's, it's road to serfdom brackets positive. It's <laughs> a road to serfdom, but you all are the serfs and I'm on the road to it. Totally. But I mean, the weird thing, the thing that... I mean, me and Riley were talking about it before, and and he was saying that it seems like there's a disavowed role for the state in all of this. But I think there's a disavowed role for labor in all of it. Like, it's it's strange how how all of this is happening strictly from the point of view of the person who's sort of escaping. But the question of, like, who's cleaning the toilets, let alone who's, like, fabricating the designs or, like, building the houses, is all just sort of, like, I think it's actually the perspective is written from. It's not just from the person escaping, but the person escaping is either an owner or manager. Right. This is allowing the owner or manager of capital mm-hmm. to wall themselves up in a citadel and then escape from the labor. Because one of the examples, right, is that they're saying, look, all all like minimum wages, you're going to have to abolish them because capital is just going to go to where there's the lowest wage because it can now because like all of these funds can be transferred at the touch of a button because we have uh, cyberspace, which they're really, really into. But it sort of neglects the fact that, well, hang on a second. Unless you have a state to enforce things like um, different wages across borders, then all of a sudden those arbitrage opportunities kind of disappear. Yeah, unless you have the like sort of pet dictatorship, or you end up in this sort of like weirder material situation where you end up with like capital flight to a nominally so communist who grows country. The, who grows the food? Well, that's sort of hand waved away. Computers will do it. Um, mm. Who yeah, actually? The food computer from yeah, MIT. Who, yeah. who actually does the? Um, the, some of the knowledge work. Oh well, we're going to have AI agents that will do it. It's a, the whole story is yeah, about Agent Smith. G- 
God about <laughs> about these these people, these people who are really good at going on the computer, slowly becoming gods living alone in citadels. And I think the, the sort of unacknowledged other side of that is, yeah, they become gods living in citadels, living an increasingly self-referential life as the world outside moves beyond needing them, essentially. Yeah. And then but but yet, like their Soylent is still being airdropped somehow, like onto their pod by means that we don't really feel like we need to explain. It's really funny to me that one half of this uh, sort of like techno libertarian cyberpunk dystopia was like writing this and at the same time just like, yeah, let me employ the weirdest pseudo Victorian nanny to raise my child. Yeah, uh, exactly. Th this will surely like result in, in normalcy. Well, that's what I mean. Perhaps you have to be as kind of like able to just edit out the service class as someone from a hereditary aristocratic class in England yeah. to be able to like n just not pay any attention to the kind of reproduction of everyday life that you rely on people like that for. Because it seems like, you know, at least the nannies are going to have to come along, judging from the many photographs over the years of his own family. But they don't get a they don't get a look in, in the sovereign individual. But that's what's so weird about it, I think is it's a kind of a dream of isolation without self sufficiency because it's not actually about you know going off grid and kind of like creating a totally autarkic zone. It's not about that at all. But how and how you're actually continuing to plug into sort of distribution channels is just left unexplained. Do you think then that this? You know, Jacob Rees-Mogg's actually act of teenage rebellion was to sort of become a guy who pretends to be a Victorian because his dad was a guy who was pretending to be like a cyberpunk guy from well, the future. Interestingly enough, actually, shit, maybe, maybe he's uh, the, the dad's like put on the cyberpunk visor and he's like running up to his room like, no, I'm going <laughs> to look at pre actually, paintings. There is a long, um, there is a long, uh, uh, uh sort of. Paragraph, several paragraphs talking about how it will be important in these in the coming cyber age of sovereign individuals without um, institutions to like force people to act in certain ways and so on because they're all going to die. Uh, it will be important for sovereign individuals to cultivate a Victorian sense of morality so that others will find them inherently Cover trustworthy. Your table legs. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Too horny. Well, and I think, I mean, I think that the, you know, the best uh, fictional example of this is Neil Stevenson, The Diamond Age. And there you actually have these, they're called, I think, the Victorians or the Atlanteans or something who are call themselves equity barons and equity lords and take all of the affectations of the city with, you know, umbrella and top hat, um, but live in a totally commodified uh, sovereign space. So I think that that combination of kind of the, the, the mores and, and appearances of an earlier, more dignified era match to this, um, this futuristic economic arrangement is actually pretty consistent with the anarcho-capitalist vibe. They're often trying to grab, they, they're trying not to be too futuristic because they think you need to anchor the future in some kind of morality. And so, yeah, you like your Hans Hermann Hoppe and you cling on to Western whiteness or your um, David Friedman, you cling on to some idea of like medieval um, self care and and community or whatever. So that old new combination is actually pretty pretty typical for this crew. And also, it might be it, it could be mentioned that that William Rees-Mogg set up his son with a spot in Rothschilds in Hong Kong in the nineties. Right, so he saw he has great columns about seeing his son off to Hong Kong to the bank that he actually sat on the board for along with James Goldsmith in the 90s. 
And that's where a lot of his reflections about the superiority of Hong Kong came from, is going to visit his son and, and walking around and being like, ooh, I like this. We have a combination of old colonial vibes with like being plugged into the global economy with this massive hinterland of like low wage labor right at our doorstep. I mean, that really became his um, mental model, as they say, in this often individual. It's very funny that he wrote this, what, two years before that started to come up? Like, he could have just looked at the lease document and realized that wasn't going to continue. Now, this was the year. It came out the year that it went back. That went, it was handed over. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it, the two things totally line up because it's like you saw the, the fading away of the, so f- the existing best version of the sovereign individual model in action. And so you needed then to sort of like salvage the blueprints or the instruction manual from Hong Kong as it was going down to try to figure out how you would reconstruct it after the colony was gone. So this is, this is a little bit a little bit more from describing sovereign individuals. It says at the highest plateau of, but again, like productivity of what? Because they also say that only the ideas in your head rather than physical capital um, will make you phenomenally rich in the future, right? So uh, productivity of productivity of ideas, I guess. Productivity of, uh, of 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 sales, maybe. But you're not really doing or making much. It's totally immaterial. You're just ta- going on the computer. So where they say productivity, yeah, it's how much you go on the computer. And these guys go on the computer more than Reed anyone. going on the computer. It says, at the highest plateau of going on the computer, these sovereign individuals will compete and interact on terms that echo the relations among the gods of Greek myth. The elusive Mount Olympus of the next well, millennium. is going to spring out of one of the other one's heads. Yeah, oh why not? God. I do yeah. often call myself the Hades of posting. Yeah. Uh, the elusive Mount Olympus of the next millennium will be in cyberspace, a realm without physical existence that will nonetheless develop what promises to be the world's largest economy by the second decade of the new millennium. And no one will have legs. <laughs> Sort of bordering on like self-awareness here. We're going to create a realm of like petty, bickering, squabbling dipshits who constantly interfere in the lives of real people. Well, but that's what's interesting about the timing, right? Because in 1997, there really wasn't a way to make money on the internet yet, right? I mean, we're at the mm. dawn of like the, the the internet browser. Like Mosaic was only invented a couple of years earlier. There were no, mm. you know, online marketplaces. There were no apps that were using that were harvesting your data and selling it onto average. None of that existed, right? Which is why when Peter Thiel read this, what he took from it was just the cyber money thing. He's like, oh, this it wasn't this insight that the internet is where the economy was going to be now. It was just that, oh, we can use the we can use the internet to like immiserate existing nation states and to make more frictionless um, the payment for things that are presumably happening out in like meat space world, brick and mortar world. Because they're not really uploading their consciousness or anything, right? They're not doing like full transhumanism in this. It's just like we're just going to be rich motherfuckers like by ourselves making, maybe not even making more money, maybe just keeping all the money we already have and just like milking that nest egg forever. Well, they didn't have the vision of years and years by Russell T. Davies. You know? <laughs> no, they did not. Uh, so the, um, we, we, we talk about as well, right? This is, this is why I think this book is so strange, right? Because on the one hand... It does make some. It does say make some accurate predictions from the 1990s that did require actually some foresight. Like, for example, looking at the internet and seeing, okay, well, this is where a lot of commerce is going to happen. But also looking at the internet and seeing this is where a lot of commerce is going to happen. And I assume it will be completely deterritorialized, and there won't be any kind of. It won't be say rooted in states because if you think about this, right? Let's just in reference to something we've been talking about recently. Uh, this sort of spat between Elon Musk and Tim Cook um, is that Tim Cook, 
needs to enforce a bunch of like content regulations that Elon Musk isn't keen on because Apple needs to operate everywhere. And if Apple needs to operate everywhere, then essentially it has to operate such that it say can operate in the European Union. Uh, and that means that and that means that like rather than imagining the internet as this place totally free from national influence, in fact it is in in many ways a channel for national influence, right? That 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 European law is a, a directly influencing what Elon Musk, who is a sovereign individual or is one of the closest things we have to it, can do with the uh, social media platform he bought, uh, because simply because like you can't wi- you can't wish away the nation state as much as as these guys want to, um, and, and as much as they say, okay, well, we see a decline that that the nation state is going to keep trying to assert its power, but it's not going to be able to control cyberspace. It's not going to be able to control these small number of phenomenally rich people. Its power is going to ebb away, as opposed to actually the nation state and very large multinational companies currently have and always have had, as well as rich people, a very 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 cozy relationship where the nation state works as mu- hard as it fucking can to make sure that these things can operate where they can operate. Yeah. To enable their profit making. Yeah, sure. It's yeah. sort of like like a bunch of guys robbing a bank and as they're being like handed the money by like tellers who are all too glad to get rid of it and are doing everything possible to accommodate them. They're like, "Wow, we're the best robbers ever." You know? <laughs> I don't even need to like have a gun for this. They're just handing me stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it also points to a couple of things that I've always found interesting about the libertarian imagination, especially the kind of gold bug style, which um, which Davidson definitely uh, tends towards. I mean, first of all, there's just like a basic just juvenile quality to this. Like there's a way in there's this kind of like a 19th century Victorian like adventure novel. Like they're just going to get the loot and like head off to a little bay somewhere and stash it. In and like 80 live- days. Yeah, no, it it has like this Robert Louis Stevenson kind of thing going. But then also that the fact that like a lot of the proper anarcho-capitalists like this are basically like degrowthers, right? Because if you actually organize a world economy based on this idea of, say, like fully gold-backed currencies, and you immediately eliminate almost all the economic activity happening in the world, right? You have like no credit, you have no debt, you have no ability to like invest in anything, basically. God set a certain amount of economic activity by putting the gold in the ground. The more you find, the more economic activity you can have. Yeah. Yeah. So there's also this kind of like tabletop kind of gaming quality to it where it's just like you have to just gather as much of the resources and just like withdraw to your you know starting point and then you'll win. Um, so that's this strange combination of like actual insights into how technology will change the possibilities for making money with a kind of very, um, reduced idea of actually what capitalism can accomplish. Like they're actually, Marx was much more like, uh, bullish on the transformative quality of capitalism than these guys who really just think all this means is we'll be, be able to like gather up all of our toys and hide them in a place no one will ever be able to get them. This is why I say it's like someone summarizing Hegel with a head injury. Because one of your basic sort of processes of history in Hegel, again, from about a billion feet, is that more and more people come to recognize one another as human. It's the fight to be recognized, more and more people to be recognized as human by one another and those who used to treat them as less. Uh, not if the Guardian's got anything to say about it. That, that's, that's the basic quality of it, right? So, and the, the whole point is like the world's ghost you know, is trying to work itself out. And the working out of the, of the world ghost is the broader and broader recognition of one another as free and equal, basically, at a very, 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 very high level. Um, 
And whereas that what they are basically are what they are writing is look, mein Weltgeist is ausgewirkt. Where the <laughs> the world ghost is actually limited to a few hundred thousand people who are fighting to be freed from political control by non-humans, essentially. The rest of humanity. NPCs. Yeah, yeah it's the, 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 the player locks. characters are trying to be freed from the shackles of, you know, Tutorial City that's in the grips of the NPCs. Um, and they talk about this as releasing the economy from political control. Again, complaining. It's, it's like complaining that, you, that the jetpack you're wearing is slowing you down because it's heavy. Yeah, releasing car from wheel. I mean, you joke about reading Road to Serfdom the wrong way, but it's almost like reading the time machine the wrong way to like, hey, this Eloise situation seems amazing. <laughs> like you, you just sit there, food appears. And no no troublesome warlocks here, certainly. Walk around in rows. They say, the, the good news is that politicians will no longer be able to dominate, suppress, and regulate the greater power of commerce in this new realm and the legislators of the ancient Greek city-states have trimmed the beard of Zeus. Also, that has to assume that, yeah, that that Zeus exists and is doing a real thing in city-states would have wanted to trim his beard. Whereas, like, there are capitalists who do do things. Yeah, as it would have been the Turks who wanted to trim his beard, so the, yeah. the Greeks would have, if anything, <laughs> stood against that. Liberation, they say, of a large part of the global economy from political control will oblige all remaining forms of government to operate on more ne- nearly market terms. This will ultimately have little choice but to treat populations and territories that they serve more like customers and way less like organized criminals treat the victims of a, of a shakedown racket. Now, this has also been deeply influential, and this is what you write in your article, on like the way that a lot of like conservative libertarians, especially the current prime minister and a lot of his friends, as well as the outgoing prime minister and several other prime ministers before her, uh, have thought yeah. about prime the economy. Prime going back as far as six to eight months. Yeah. Um. Where, where <laughs> they are, it, it feeds into their love of essentially trying to breathe life back into British slash other capitalism by devolving it into smaller territories that will compete with one another on more of a market basis to see who has the best regulations. Mm-hmm. Right, because like Britain's not small enough, so it needs to be made into ever smaller versions of itself that can outmaneuver. I mean, that's something I write about in the book, and that it's it's been written about before. But it's you know Peter Hall, this anarchist geographer, stood in front of the Labour Party um, in the mid seventies and said, "Hey, nothing has worked in the inner cities. What if we just lift all regulations of all kinds and turn parts of Glasgow and um, and uh, Liverpool into purge?" Extraterritorial yeah, we're going to get rid of the age of consent no and the speed limit, and we're just going to see what happens. <laughs> yeah, and he said they'll be outside the UK, they'll be outside the European community, they'll be their own entities. And Jeffrey Howe basically heard this and and pitched it, and and that's what the enterprise zones were. Of course, that Canary Wharf being the only one that really worked. But now, you know, unfortunately, there's no new ideas since Thatcher in the UK. So. All that keeps happening is like the enterprise zones and free ports keep on getting trotted out like election cycle after election cycle. No one's brave enough to say that you're allowed, you should be allowed to drive 70 miles an hour on a country road. And that's the reason yeah. why Britain will always stagnate. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Maybe there can be small delimited areas where you're allowed to. But now, I mean, it's, it's literally the same dudes like Almond Butler, who was at the Adam Smith Institute in like 1980 is sitting on the committee to, you know, plan the free ports for uh, Boris Johnson. Almond Butler, the man who brings me my nuts. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it does genuinely seem like we have this, again, the, sa- the same people who have been trying to 
and what's interesting here to me, right, is this the same people who have been predicting that this is going to happen because of computers, essentially. Going on the computer mm-hmm. is going to create a beep, new kind beep, of world. Et um, and that they, at the same time, uh, st- will stop at nothing short of, of constantly trying to get into uh, positions of power and influence to actually make it happen. Yeah, and, 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 they get, and they get discredited every time and humiliated, and then they just pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and walk on like nothing's happened. Yeah, the grip is intense. I mean, you know, someone who studies neoliberalism, like me, I'm like compelled to keep on studying Britain because it's like, you know, Los Alamos, basically. It's just like the place where, where the detonations keep happening, even though, as you say, they, they, they fail each, each time. Like, and I think it's, I honestly think like British pundits are just too depressed to face the reality that like time never moves forward in the, in the world of policy. So they, Every time there's a new prime minister, there's some like murmur about like the turn to state capitalism and the end of neoliberalism. And now this time Thatcher must really be dead. But in fact, it just ends up being the same shitty ideas every every two weeks. Are you telling me not to get dangerously hype for Prime Minister Keir Starmer? <laughs> because I've been building a lot on that house, and all of this sand under the foundations, you know, it only ma- it only like redoubles my commitment. Yeah, the entire collection of British politicians and political journalists are basically a battalion-sized element of Japanese soldiers still fighting the war on a Pacific island somewhere, and they was really boring for a long time, and then someone threw Jeremy Corbyn at them for five years, and they got, they got to pretend they were fighting a war again. Well, they're like they were stuck in the eighties, so it's like a bunch of like Argentinian <laughs> conscript holdouts still fighting the Falklands. My favorite, like, literal connection to that is Patrick Roberts and the guy who started the Bruges Group, which was like the biggest early Brexit sort of think tank. Uh, later, ended up doing PR for an elderly Pinochet Amazing. when he was in his, so in his exile. This, this book has like three core concepts. Uh, Milo, you want to say something? I was Go just saying, what would the PR for Pinochet be? Just be like, he wanted to give people free helicopter rides. <laughs> yeah, he's kept up. They're, they're very slippery he's helicopters. very into sightseeing. Very buttery helicopter. Um, <laughs> so the three core concepts of this book, as far as I could sort of tease them out, right, are number one, this idea of megapolitics. The megapolitics is basically... It seems like something from the day to day. Politics is big now. You're listening to megapolitics. Megapolitics. Well, it's basically like um like a Fernand Braudel type concept, mm-hmm. right? Where we're looking at historical trends on the level of like climate, geography, certain seismic innovations like the printing press or whatever. Um, but that their main conceit is that megapolitics has now sped up so much that it, because of might because of miniaturization and microprocessing that it actually matters to be able to predict it within one lifetime. Like you can make money by predicting these like, again, long durée trends within one lifetime. But also, our concept of politics, which is just the control of resources through the threat of mass violence, and then technology, which is going on the computer. Uh, <laughs> are those basically the three main concepts of this and how they're sort of deployed? Uh, yeah, it seems like. I mean, the mega, tra- mega politics is just ripping off like mega trends, which is another sort of airport book from the early 80s. And it's, it could be noted that Nouriel Roubini's new book is just called Mega Threats, right? It seems like whenever you want to move some copy, you just put Omega on it. Um, but yeah, I think that it, it's not, it, it would be, I think, a mistake to see it as a, as a, like a fully thought out theory of the deep future or something. I mean, like all investment manuals, it only has to work um, for the next trade, so to speak, right? I mean, it, it has a very, actually like a short term 
quality to it, which is similar to, for example, the the wonderful title of Peter Navarro, the former trade advisor for Trump's book was called um, If It's Raining in Brazil by Starbucks, because, you know, it's meant to be this sort of like rule of thumb for the day trader. And that's definitely how the sovereign individual. Sounds like, like a George Formby song from the <laughs> 1940s. If it's raining in Brazil by a Starbucks and I'll meet you down in Lambeth Square. <laughs> so the the. Co- as you were. <laughs> the core prediction. So the, some of the core <laughs> predictions, right? That would be hall favorite. A bit unusual, but a lot of them are just, uh, they observed things that were, let's say, not insightful to observe in the 1990s. Like, for example, you couldn't, you couldn't swing a, a, a cat, but for hitting someone in international relations or politics talking about the relative decline in the importance of the nation state. Um, also, or, talk, or, or the sort of growth of barrierless trade again this is a couple years before like china joins the wto nafta's already signed like yeah and stuff that like trickles down to popular fictions by the time you get like jennifer government and stuff a couple of years later it's like and and also stuff like well you know cyberpunk like snow crash or whatever where it's like oh it's it's all corporations it's all zaibatsu or whatever so they they say if our reasoning is correct the nation state will be replaced by a new form of sovereignty some of them unique in history, some of them reminiscent of the city-states and medieval merchant republics of the pre-modern world. What was old will be new again after 2000, and what was unimaginable will be commonplace. As the scale of technology plunges, governments will find they must compete like corporations for income, which is again like the concept of Prospera, right? We are going to try to have an attractive regulatory system to create a tax base. It's the concept of Britain as well. But. If you want your international relations title, it's like searching for a, like a millennial Westphalia, right? Like it's a, a, a new sort of like way of organizing the state in service of, in service of capital. Yeah. And so what they see, right, is they, they say, look, that citizenship, under the concept of citizenship, like, and they're, they're right, the concept of citizenship is not eternal. You know, if we were just, if we were we, in, uh, you wouldn't have considered yourself a citizen, for example, of like, of like Charlemagne's empire, you wouldn't have necessarily, right? You, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Citizenship mm-hmm. sort of is more connected to like, I don't know, your status as a burger, really. It's, it's um, an enlightenment notion, fundamentally, sure. yeah. But, I'm going to become a burger. But they say, right, <laughs> that the importance <laughs> Trying of Trying to explain citizenship to an American. Imagine a burger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if you can, Imagine I'm, only five guys are allowed <laughs> to become citizens. If you can understand how and why the importance of chivalric oaths faded away with the transition to an industrial organization of society, you'll be better positioned to see how citizenship as we know it could fade away in the information age. Both served a similar function, facilitating the exercise of power under two quite different sets of megapolitical conditions. And it's observations like this that sort of I find quite arresting, right? Because on the one hand, the returns to citizenship, especially of citizenship in, say, like a lot of the industrialized world, have gotten considerably worse, right? Hmm. Your experience as a, as a normal citizen of somewhere in the industrialized world has gotten, on average, considerably worse. Your access to healthcare is much less, and so on. Yes. However, it is still, the, it's like become increasingly the wire. Like, you, you talk about the wire and the wire shrinking and, like, you know, sort of lifeboat ethics and all of this. Uh, we, we see what happens to people who do not have desirable citizenships, after all. Yeah, I was going to say that, I mean, that it, it is both true that being a citizen is worth less and less, but what citizen you are is still the thing that makes the biggest difference in your life chances, right? It's the kind of Branko Milanovic point. It's like what passport you're born with is the biggest uh, determiner of what happens the rest of your life. 
and 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 their argument, of course, is that the again the advent of computers, okay, because they, of course they don't believe in any of that climate change malarkey. Like James Dale Davidson is, I believe, a main investor in Newsmax uh, as well. <laughs> uh, just to <laughs> another day to day ass yeah. name that yeah. <laughs> mega politics mega with uh, Newsmax. You're watching Newsmax <laughs> with me, Max News. <laughs> uh, but that essentially, right? That 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 um. They, they, the, the future they envision is that when production is decentralized, completely dematerialized, completely deterritorialized, it's nothing but sovereign individuals in gigantic castles surrounded by armed guards with the fucking um, uh, 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 battle royale exploding collars on. You know, it's nothing, nothing but that. Uh, 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 that. That will actually be a great sort of um, moment for social justice because all of the Ta- all of these sort of hyper-talented uh, cognitive elite currently languishing with um, un- non-valuable citizenships will rise to the top as well and join the ranks of sovereign individuals while sort of like, say, middle-income earners in developed countries will be plunged down into the depths. Um, and, you know, again, this is... It seems... It's, it's something where that there, there has been something of... Something that looks almost, if you squint, like an, an accurate prediction of... Um, of what politics will do, uh, what, how, how politics will be experienced by a lot of downwardly mobile people in the developed world, um, but how that's not just being facilitated by going on the computer. That's been an active political choice that's been campaigned for, that's been put into place by a lot of these people who like this book, and how, you know, that in, and that, you know, in many cases, right, the, we're not really, you know, you don't really have to do a lot of competing for sort of rising wealthy from like China or, um, or, or, or various parts of, of like Nigeria or whatever, right? You don't have to do a lot of competing for them. They still come to the high tax jurisdictions because that's where the fanciest cities are, where they can, you know, have their beautiful penthouses and yeah. so on. Yeah, they want to ruin your housing market. Yeah, <laughs> yeah mm. it, it, it's, it's missing an analysis of treats is the thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that in, that is why it's a good book in a way, is they're just being completely unromantic and, and well, the opposite of their celebratory about the things that people are usually bemoaning, which is like, you know, stratification of societies, securitization of living places, like people withdrawing to like armed compounds this, of the style of Brazil. I mean, there's the gated communities that everyone was like really uh, concerned about in the 1990s that become normalized. But those are the kind of things that most people were worried about and they're just saying, no, this is the frontier in the future. What's to worry about? This is great. Like, let's invest in these more and let's go, which is kind of, you know, then their argument is with the other elites because, you know, the, the plebs are never really going to be too much of a concern because you can just keep them at bay. But what they don't like, and this is the whole sort of anti-woke capitalist thing, right? I mean, the, the only socialists left from the point of view of right-wing libertarians are, are other elites, the ones that, you know, are in social democratic party positions and work work in the European Commission or whatever. So it's those people who could um, still stand in the way of the plans of the sovereign individual sort of escape strategies. That's why they are the they're the primary enemy, not the kind of masses. And and in fact, there is a great deal of, let's say, unkind things written about Clinton and Blair in this book, even though, again, this book really is a kind of uh, peon to the world that those guys were, were actually making. Building. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like... It's the kind of thing like, that gets you to calling Bill Clinton a communist, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, the kind of thing that gets you to calling Bill Clinton a <laughs> communist is living in the world Bill Clinton wants to make, but wanting to believe that you made it with your going on the computer <laughs> skills. Yes. Yeah. yeah, basically. And so this is this is sort of a, a little section on the collapse of the state and the death of politics in general, right? They think that there is politics versus efficiency. Politics is the rule of power. Efficiency is the rule of the market. They Again, they see no uh, combination, let's say. They see no combinatorial relationship between these two things. Um, they see sort of that when they talk about... Um, they say they, they say the Don Quixote of the 21st century will not be a knight errant struggling to revive the glories of feudalism, but, but a bureaucrat in a brown suit, a tax collector yearning for a citizen to audit. Um, where again, you have to ask yourself, well, hang on, who for is the one in, in this <laughs> view of the ultra libertarian going in the computer future? Where, uh, where does all the labor come from? Uh, where does the food you eat come from? Um, what role do you have in, uh, say, as as capital or management, what role do you have in producing the uh, the the food and things and um, battle royale collars for your armed guards? And the assumption is that th- that with the advent of the going on the computer, there will no longer need to be large scale organization of production. That it will be sort of automated and ver- almost post scarcity, but post scarcity for a small number of humans. And that to me seems like again. It would be a very funny idea if not for the fact that a number of people directly in power actually seem to believe elements of it. This kind of feels like a screed of pure cope. It kind of feels, and I don't know, I, I, I'm interested in like the historical context of this a little bit more because it kind of feels like, I was, I was thinking about what you were saying about the whole, uh, the idea that these types of guys, the types of guys who were like really kind of falling for this were the ones who really wanted to sincerely believe that Blair and Clinton were like straight up communists and the sort of like Thatcherite world that maybe they had envisioned and sort of really invested in was about to die rather than sort of recognizing the reality that no, it sort of continues and every objective like bit of evidence suggests that that would be the case. So if, if it, and, and in that way, because if you read it as just pure cope and they don't really have to think about like, okay, well in this future, where do I kind of you know the 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 term or question that I keep coming up to whenever we talk about startups, like who deals with the poop, right? Where does the poop go? Who deals with the poop? Who takes it away? Really important thing, like you know, same. Who are the bin men in this scenario, right? Um, but like it doesn't the really matter to them because because that's right. That oh, okay. There we go. Title title. Um, I was yeah. Oh, for fuck, that's great. Um, but that, I think that seems to be it. It's kind of like they don't. But this doesn't, I, and I guess the question is like, was this a book that wasn't supposed to be taken that seriously? But like the problem now is, and the reason why it sort of shows up on all the sort of like great business books that you should read is that people take it, are taking it much more seriously than it necessarily warranted, not necessarily intended, but um, yeah. And, I, and, and as a result, and I was like reading, uh, when I was reading like the New Statesman piece where sort of looking at like how Sunak and uh, kind of, and I guess like even Liz Truss and stuff, how they are sort of influenced by this idea of that. And again, it kind of comes down to like, this is a blueprint for how to do politics without really having to do politics. This is a way to do politics without having to like think about what the purpose of like a state is and what its responsibilities are. Um, and I wondered whether there's sort of like a dissonance in that. Like, were the, was like Resmog and this other guy, like, do, do they like intend this to kind of be here as a blueprint of what the future will be like? Or is this a case of like, I'm kind of mad that my party didn't win, but also I'm having a great time on the computer and all my friends are on there. So why can't everyone else's friends be on there as well? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, you know, more than being a kind of work of history or political theory, it's really kind of a self-help manual, right? I mean, because if you think about it, if you think about it, its popularity amongst, let's say, young striving um, would be kings of Silicon Valley or something. It's not that they read it and say through close analysis of this text, I can understand better what the world would be like in 100 years or what it was like 500 years ago. But but that through reading this, I can embody the kind of like subjectivity of its authors, right? I mean, the same reason people read Ray Dalio. They don't read Ray Dalio because they're like interested in exactly what's happening with like Chinese industrial policy. They're reading it to become Ray Dalio. And if, and if, and if you read it, in that way, and then you, th- and then then success becomes the number of ways in which you see your own life being similar to what the life is you're being you're reading about in the book. So let's say you can order DoorDash and it appears at your door, and you haven't had to think about who made it or whatever the conditions of. Then wow, I just became a little bit more of the sovereign individual without even um, having to try that hard or spend that much money, right? So then I think that's it's like it's more like a kind of the medieval reference would be something like these these texts that describe you how to live a a saintly life. It's kind of like the inverse of that, right? It's like, how can you live the most sovereign life you can from, from day to day as a kind of a mindset and a way of being rather than like a a nuanced understanding of the middle ages. Cause that's really kind of beside the point. And and I also kind of wanted to ask a little bit about like how that influences uh, stuff like effective altruism. So like, Obviously, like one of the examples that I was thinking about when I was reading about this book was obviously like Will McCaskill's one. I think it's the latest one about like uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's uh, the one that's well, we come know out the future. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And like one of the arguments sort of being that like or what it seems to be. Because again, I haven't read it. I've only sort of read segments of it. Where, but it seems like a lot of his argument is like. Yeah, um, it, it seems sort of apocalyptic in some ways, but it's like yeah, you'll sort of be fine. Um, and all the problems that you sort of envision, like, you know, robots will do it, right? Or like AI will sort it out or like, you know, you'll just learn how to deal with it and things will be fine. Um, and like, it seemed, there seems to sort of be similarities between this book, like the sovereign individual and that type of like effect. And, 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 I, and I guess like I sort of wondered whether effective altruism sort of comes out of this type of thinking. Is it sort of like a spinoff or is it, or is like effective altruism just like a way of repackaging like the ideology behind the sovereign individual, but to sort of make it appear to be much more kind of like, or much more of like a so-called community. Yeah. I mean, I think that they really get off on, you know, feeling like they're operating at a kind of a Spock-like level of rationality that most people aren't, have no access to. So like that they think in ter- at the level of the population, like through some kind of Richard Dawkins kind of like induction thing. Um, and so that if you, if you, convince yourself you can think in terms of like millennia and then population sizes like faster than we can actually conceptualize and mostly just an ego boost right but i think that the effect of altruism it seemed to me just like a kind of a white pill version of roko's basilisk where it's just kind of like rather than saying um you're doing this because you don't want the ai to destroy you in the end you're just sort of you're doing this because you want actually for your own genetic material to be um, the one that gets through and then and defines the kind of population in the in the long run. Like that seems to me the the place where that stuff actually that population level thinking becomes attractive to Silicon Valley people is where it can just potentially mean just like your own cloning um, into the into the deep future. So it seems like it's the kind of the 
the mystique of of the human sciences mixed with some kind of supposedly counterintuitive utilitarian rationale rationale that would just like you know charm any kind of high school debater um I but think I don't, these, I don't, yeah these guys aren't necessarily utilitarian they're trying to be <clears throat> to be materialists but they're mm-hmm. being materialists who are too enamored with computers they're being materialists mm-hmm. who are who forget that as long as there will be humans, humans will have bodies, and bodies will require material things that aren't just able to be uh, dealt with on a spreadsheet. But it's hard to know what relationship like William Rees-Mogg could have even had to a computer, right? I mean, he was pretty old already when he wrote this. Like, how da- how down with, like, coding and stuff was Rees-Mogg? Probably not very. Like, he was probably using analogies to things like you were saying before, like the spinning Jenny and stuff. Just like, this is going to be the breakthrough technology and I don't know how it works exactly, but it will sort of change the way we live. Yeah, well, that's, that's, the, that's how I see this, right? As, as a fundamental misunderstanding of like the role of capital and capitalism, the role of computers and planning, that what they're talking about with the sovereign individual really is a group of fantastic planners who will be able to plan an economy that, that separates them from the rest of the non-human animals in a great citadel. But that that the planning has to go somewhere. It gets it's why well, the whole it, it, it's 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 like you, you know you don't have to know how a cotton gin works to get rich. You know, owning exactly a cotton off cotton. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 in that sense, getting rich is the easy part, right? So long as you're in the the situation that allows you to do it, you, it requires very little um, sort of expertise. Also, you know uh, what the sort of long term consequences of that are. You don't have to think about that much, uh, and that's sort of gotten us into this situation in the first place. Uh, so when we talk also about this about the state, right? They talk about the different ways that the, that uh, the state can relate to its to its individuals, uh, that or that the different ways the state can be controlled. It can be a potentate or like some kind of like a like a kingship, whatever. Um, it can also be have treat its um. Uh, uh, be controlled by its customers, which is, of course, what they want, right? Where the state will provide the best service, the best. Gets, it, sort of, this gets like funneled down to the sort of the Elon Musk thing, where the state is a kind of Reddit. Yeah, indeed. Uh, where you know, I'm going to move to Texas because you know they're not, um, they're not doing like like, like woke stuff like Gavin Newsom. Uh, but it also, the interesting thing I'd, I'd look at is when they talk about well, as the state as controlled by its employees. Where we will see a little bit of the shadow of that cathedral and bazaar thing that we talked about uh, a couple, uh, last week. Where they say, mass democracy leads to control of government by its employees. Um, but wait, you may be saying in most jurisdictions there are many more voters than there are persons on government payroll. How could it be possible for employees to dominate under such conditions? The welfare state emerged to answer exactly this quandary. Since there were not otherwise enough employees to create a working majority, increasing numbers of voters were effectively put on government payroll to receive um, transfer payments of all kinds, whether this is uh, healthcare, whether that's direct like welfare payments and so on. In effect, the recipients of the transfer payments and subsidies have to be thought of as government employees who are able to dispense with the bother of reporting every day for work. But that's uh, the welfare queens again, libertarians. They can't <laughs> help themselves. Yeah. But also, right, the, the other thing is the control of government by employees. They're not just talking about the masses of voters who've been bought off. You know, again, and Mitt Romney basically once said several years ago, you know, 43% of people are basically government employees. We'll never reach them. Um, but where we talk about government employees, we also talk about the insiders, the people who do not want to, ta- to transfer to the new, much fairer merit- meritocratic world, the people who are very keen to protect their positions, the people who are insiders, 
who will claim that there are some kinds of rules and, be, uh, and behaviors that you should follow, who will claim that there are moral codes that prevent this from happening, aka the inhabitants of the cathedral. It is always true that in every, every right-wing libertarian uh, sort of tract, every single time, they will always say that, look, this is the natural way that human society should exist. This is the way that it would just spontaneously exist if um, you know, governments didn't make it didn't uh, sort of ta- uh, tax a lot of my going on the computer money, right? Then there must therefore be a conspiracy of insiders who are, for their own benefit, keeping it this way and keeping my dream from coming true. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, there's a great Reese Mogg column from the 90s. It's called, It's the Elite That Matter. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, he's consistent with that. He, like you mentioned the bell curve and he, they use this category of the cognitive elite in, um, in the sovereign individual. And I, I do think you're right. I mean, I think there's this great part where there's, where they're sort of pushing back against Christopher Lash, where he's, they're saying like Christopher Lash says that, you know, the information elite is out of touch and doing their own thing. And, and Reese Mogg and Davidson are basically like, damn right. Like we got to do more of our own thing. Like we need to be even more out of touch than people like Christopher Lash and Pat Buchanan say that, that, the information elites are, but we, what we need to not be doing is, you know, there's this great passage where they're slagging off, uh, multiculturalism, but they're saying that, you know, these new elites conjure up the agreeable or the world for the new allegiance conjures up the agreeable image of a global bazaar in which exotic cuisines, exotic styles of dress, exotic music, exotic (laughs) travel customs can be savored indiscriminately with no questions asked. The new elites are at home in transit en route to a high level conference the opening of a new franchise to an international film festival or an undiscovered resort. Theirs is essentially a tourist view of the world. So it kind of sounds like a kind of right-wing hit at globalists, but, but it's quite the opposite when they're just like, they're not globalist enough. Why are they just going on tour? Why are they just going to a hotel? Why don't they realize they need to create their own nations where they can enjoy all this stuff and not have to deal with anyone whatsoever? Well, it's like, how dare you go to Vietnam and not open up a garment factory? Yeah, no. and, see, and, and sort of secede from the coastline and turn like Natrong into like its own autonomous territory. Or, yeah. or, or alternatively, how dare you be okay with the fact that there are Vietnamese people here and not using their desperation to like force them to work for lower wages? Yeah, uh, you know, it's in, just in, in sightseeing. Both just sightseeing. Yeah. <laughs> so famously, they talk also. They're famously, you know, this book uh, was been lauded as correctly predicting several things. Um, such as uh, cryptocurrency, uh, even though I think it's that you can't really make that claim. They say, oh, there's going to be cyber money and people are going to be able to opt out of inflation uh, because it's not going to be controlled by any government. Um, but, you, you know, again, opt out of inflation and opt into a different and much worse system of inflation and deflation. Yeah. Uh, a, a currency that is uh, unusable for any kind of thing. <laughs> other you can't inflate a currency if its value vanishes altogether. Yeah. I was going to say, it's kind of kind of insincere to sort of say that these books predict this phenomena when the weirdos who like read them then go on to try and make that phenomena, that's also true right um and also they say oh and also they they predicted the metaverse and it's like maybe uh i don't know if you can predict something that uh let's say doesn't have legs <laughs> or someone else wrote about five years earlier yeah uh they but they also say you know they they talk about ai right they say development of tools with a voice meaning like ai agents for multiple applications creates the possibility for dispersal of the individual into multiple simultaneous activities. So you will be your own cognitive labor force. 
The individual will no longer be singular, but potentially an ensemble of dozens or even thousands of activities undertaken through intelligent agents. So they're like the answer to like when someone asks who clears up the poo and who's the bin man is it's you. It's like yes. alternate versions of yeah, infinite the, versions of yourself. It's you in the multiverse. You're doing it. Yeah, they predicted the multiverse. They predicted having different tabs open in your browser. (laughs) (laughs) This will not only enhance the productive capability of the most talented individuals, it will also make the sovereign individual potentially more formidable militarily than the individual has ever been before. Not only will one individual be able to manifestly multiply his activities by employing an essentially unlimited number of agents, he or she will be able to (laughs) act- Jacob Rees-Mogg's dad wants a fucking mech suit. Incredible. He or she will be able to act after death. Uh, for the first time, an individual will be capable of carrying on elaborate tasks, even if he's I, biologically dead. I, I, I'm okay. Listen, right? I, I, there's, there's a lot going on here. We can analyze it on a number of different levels. The level I have chosen for this episode is Jacob Rees-Mogg's psychoanalysis, and right now. I'm I'm feeling I understand this man a lot more. I understand the reason why he wants to wear the stovepipe hat because he like sort of as a child peeks around the door of his dad's study and his dad is banging out I want to be a sort of ghost vampire robot. <laughs> Just putting the electrodes on his bald head one by one. <laughs> so I'm sorry I have to do this, but this does sort of feel a little bit apt, but it does kind of feel like Jacob Rees-Mogg's dad is sort of like the Gendo Akari and all this, and he's like, yes. really, dis- he's really disappointed that his son is just like this weird kid who like doesn't seem to like seems to sort of like be low on every vitamin and you know kind of useless. And he's just like, well, rather than sort of like be a father figure, I'm going to imagine that I have multiple sons who are all good at like different things. One of them, one of them, one of them will pilot the Eva, but the other one will also clean the poo. And that's yeah, what I'm going to spend but, my time doing, rather than rather than like parenting my child. Yeah, the poo robot. <laughs> Jacob can make that call to his broker from the limousine, but then is just like sobbing uncontrollably afterwards, totally broken by an emotion. <laughs> my father would talk to me if I could somehow have an AI me make all these calls. <laughs> uh, it says it will no longer be possible for either an enemy at war or a criminal to completely extinguish the capability of an individual to retaliate by killing him which is one of the more revolutionary <laughs> innovations in the logic of violence in the whole of history. <laughs> um, well, that's like, this is the, the kind of capitalism they're looking at, right? But it's a little bit of a dark vision of things to come. The more things get, like, completely deterritorialized and dematerialized, and the more actual returns flow to deterritorialized and dematerialized activities, like, we already see some of that, right? Their ghost kitchens can sort of pop up and morph into eight different restaurants over the course of a night. Um, high frequency drop shipping basically just arbitrages like microscopic differences in um in labor in 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 wages between different territories, right? Again, AI generates some strange shirts. Um, <laughs> and as but as you know, as the more that you create these like various agents or algorithms, the more they learn to talk like humans and not just like you know directly compare numbers, but put like a human face on the comparison of numbers. Then you know you, you can see a whole sort of completely dematerialized, deterritorialized theoretical businesses just kind of wink in and out of existence sort of all the time and and the people actually doing the material work will not understand what they're doing or why it will be guided by a computer that they will have no knowledge of how or why it works and so like this is this is the thing right but reese mong and davidson think that they are describing a kind of um libertarian utopia where everyone is able to to achieve and and re- enjoy the returns to the maximum amount of the capabilities with which they were born, 
enabled by, you know, the decentralizing process of the computer that makes returns to violence less because you can't control big swaths of territory or factories or whatever, right? But instead, you're just sort of going on the computer and managing global networks of more or less everything with your 100,000 other fellow human friends. But what actually seems to be happening, right, is a slow transformation into building the world from the uh, one-shot role-playing game Paranoia. <laughs> where, Friend computer. Yeah, we, yes. Exactly. Where we are, where the, the, the fa- ultimate fantasy here appears to be um, that the 100,000 uh, real humans create uh, a mad computer that sort of uh, terrorizes and governs uh, everyone outside of their citadels. I mean, the, the really sort of like vexing thing for me this, about this book is it's like we can both say that it's totally implausible and have to admit that between the time it was written and now the world has come to look more like the one that they described. Right. So it's like kind of both utter bullshit and yet sadly, like actually very good diagnostic of the present world. I think something like the Sam Bankman Freed collapse is a pretty good example of something can, you know, how would that be assessed as an extraordinary success or an extraordinary failure? Well, it's both because he actually played uh, an openness in the technology and the regulatory frame exactly like they're suggesting to become extraordinarily rich for a minute till he wasn't. So I feel like their sovereign individual world is like that too. It's sort of their sovereign individual world is sort of both a calamitous failure and a huge success, almost like, you know, serially and simultaneously. It's a, those swings in fortune are kind of built into what they're describing. I, I think it's that the things they attack, they are in large part able to defeat. But the things that they wish to build make no sense and can't be built. It also seems to be the case that they kind of like the thing they get right in their diagnosis and the thing that a lot of these guys get right in their diagnosis is like, the underlying cynicism or like the kind of cynicism has sort of realized. And I think what they're sort of aware of is that like the consequences of the politics that they ardently support. And even though they sort of like pretend to sort of lament it and are kind of aware that it won't, it, you know, the consequences of here to stay is kind of like the, the, the thing that they've sort of predicted accurately and continue to do so is the ongoing kind of acceleration of isolation. Um, and like how that kind of informs the technology that gets funded, the technology that sort of, you know, we are kind of forced to use the technology that we don't get to use, um, you know, and, and so like, and and I don't know, like, I think it, it sort of feels like at the core of the idea of being the happy sovereign individual or like to sort of accept kind of being the sovereign individual, um, you also have to sort of accept quite a good deal of alienation, isolation, like atomization, right? Um, yeah, but and, that, that's cool to them because they're all nerds, right? Well, I think they've come to terms with that. Maybe because they've been, maybe because like they've never had friends, or like in the case of uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's dad, just did not want to hang out with his son. Which, like, I get, you know, bad vibes and all that, right? But it's kind of like, but so, but it, it does sort of feel like they've kind of accepted that okay, the future is going to be this sort of intense atomization and everyone spending lots of time on their computer and like making their kind of primary like their primary relationships will sort of be realized on the computer and therefore we can sort of build a society around that and like they could be and the, the sad thing is they could be right about that like you know it seems at the moment and maybe that's also the reason why it has a lot of staying power and why even though there are certainly parts of this book that sound insane um is still kind of something that is used at least as kind of like informing part of the blueprint of, of like the world that Peter Thiel wants to make. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the the idea of commodifying sovereignty is sound. I think you know it would be a few years after this until geographers started using that category, and they, but they were you know they were right that that is what's driving policy. The self-aggrandizement of thinking of yourself as a sovereign individual is obviously like you can sell that all day forever. I mean, I, I had forgotten there's this part where they talk about the possibility of a quote special passport issued by the League of Sovereign Individuals. <laughs> you're just able to join the special club so you know you'll always be able to sell that idea of hyper exclusivity and thirdly i mean this idea of blank territory like it's always going to sell i mean you know <laughs> colonialism has lasted a long time behind a myth that is actually clearly a myth that there's some part of the globe that you can go to and sort of take over and and um you know govern as if it's your own and even people who sort of know that that's not true still know that they can always bring in sort of new recruits with the, you know, the dream of, of Neom or Prospera or Liberland or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's, that goes sort of kind of full circle back to bringing it into the materiality of where, where on the ground and where in the form of wood and bricks and mortar are these places being made because so much of the theorizing is about abstracting from the material, of about pretending that no one has to actually make anything and that all the useful economic activity is going to be planning undertaken by sort of a group of super geniuses, right? Um, is that everywhere where these things, everywhere there's very sort of tidy ideas come into contact with reality, right? They are... Um, stymied. They, they, yeah, they're, they're stymied. They fail. They, they don't... Enter, it's maybe, or maybe people just don't understand it enough, right? The, the, the pod falls over and fills with water, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, my, my, fa- my favorite place to look for, like, how this... What the kind of end game is of this is in novels, actually, because I think science fiction novels are often much better at sort of playing this out. And there's a couple of them, I think, that are good examples of, like, what does the sovereign individual look like in reality. And one of them is this great book called Alongside Night from 1979. And it's basically like a battle between the anarcho-capitalists and the Hayekians. So the bad guy in the novel is someone who thinks that you can kind of, that you can do like Milton Friedman style, like monetary management. And society is falling apart. The American dollar is tanking. And this brave group of anarcho-capitalist rebels kind of start setting up outposts out in the wilderness. And when you go in, you have to sign a contract saying, you know, you're submitting to third party arbitration and everything will be done through third parties. There's no democracy. There's no. And they're kind of like these liberated zones of sovereign individual type behavior. And eventually there's like this conversion moment where um, the whole country decides that this is a better way to operate. And so collectively, like the United States, like dissolves itself and the black and yellow of the anarcho-capitalist flag flies and everyone now accepts like some sort of encrypted gold-backed cash, which is like kind of the heroic version of this. But there's another book called um, Oath of Fealty by Paul Anderson and, or Paucity, I can't remember who, but it's about like an arcology being built in the middle of Los Angeles from 1981, like a city corporation. Everyone has to buy their way in surrounded by like a poor, a poor city and things last for a while, but then conformity kicks in and like bureaucracy reproduces itself inside the arcology. And eventually the surrounding the plebeians basically storm the block and, you know, destroy the libertarians. Ah, so it's like a documentary about Shoreditch House. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, so that's, I think this is just 
an, an interesting look into one of the, I think, foundational texts of the techno-libertarian movement. Yeah, um, and what I can't get over is it's so dumb. It's so stupid. It, it, it's like sort of airport stock tips book that has grown an ideology. And it, it, this is the thing that has like sort of triumphed in so many respects, despite practical failure every time. I mean, books books are in the airport because they sell all that just mm. to like not spend time with your son. I don't know. I mean, I I was I was, was going to say it couldn't be me, but it probably would be. I, I constructed a trans millennial vision of uh, capitalism to avoid hanging out with little Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes your kid's weird and has bad vibes. I think that's clear. Yeah, I, I think that the, the the thing that I always remember right is defining what success is because these things only need to be good enough to win the next battle. And you tell, and as with so many things, right? Uh, you tell the crazy story to beat the real thing that exists. You tell the story of the Hyperloop to make sure that the train doesn't get built. And you win not because the Hyperloop does... You don't lose because the Hyperloop doesn't get, get built. You win because the train never gets built. You know, you, you tell the story of the, um, of the sort of libertarian future not so that you can... Um, not so that you can create a league of sovereign individuals that'll be issuing each other passports that I guess allow you to commit several murders per year, but... Within reason, sort of Russian judicial system. Yeah, but that really what you're actually, what, what are the things you're doing is your, 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 your story of how to live beyond the state is a thing that motivates you and your friends who all have a deep contempt for democracy and would prefer to live beyond it. So it's important to remember what success means. Yeah, I mean, I really think, yeah, exactly. I think that the essence of the Silicon Valley ideology, as much ink has been spilled about it, is that it was a place, at least was over the last couple of decades, where valuation had no relationship to profitability, right? I mean, it was a place where you could become extraordinarily successful with while losing money every single year. And like this, this, the construction then of like a persuasive narrative in that world is not about like being logical or being consistent. It's just about like producing a kind of a cloud of, um, of self-confidence so great that it, you know, intoxicates the people around you or whatever that this thing book was able to do. Well, uh, I believe I've been sufficiently intoxicated by the uh, honey-dipped pen of William Rees-Mogg and James Dale Davidson. Mm. Uh, but mm. Quinn, I want to thank you so much for coming and chatting with us uh, about this terrible book today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Uh, and <laughs> I want to thank you for listening, whether you're listening to it on the Patreon or the free feed, uh, at some point close to Christmas <laughs> when uh, we've decided we want to take a few days off. Yeah, that's right. So you know what? Uh, happy, happy holidays, or maybe happy mm -hmm. couple weeks before the holidays. We're really tired. Uh, <laughs> and we will see you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.